You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary South. We exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission by seeing the lost redeemed, the redeemed matured, and the matured multiplied for the glory of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarysouth.com. As we start our sermon out here this morning, yes, we're going to be going back to the book of Genesis. Uh, So I'm going to ask you to get your Bibles out. If you don't have a Bible, we have plenty. We would love for you to have that with you. Um, But I want you to open up to Genesis chapter 10. And uh, we're going to have a lot of scripture today. And so we're going to start out this morning uh, asking you guys to be reading the scripture to each other. So in Genesis chapter 10, all of chapter 10, I want you to partner up with somebody. uh, Get close to somebody so that you can hear each other. And I'd love for you to be uh, audibly out loud next to, to each other, reading chapter 10 out loud. So the first person go through like the first half of chapter 10, the, the next person go through the second half, because we got a lot of scripture beyond that we're going to go into today, but this is going to set us up for what we're talking about today in the Tower of Babel. So Genesis chapter 10, if somebody, if, don't let, let anybody be alone, make sure that they have a partner to read with. We want you to be reading the scriptures to each other. So on your marks. That's sad. Genesis chapter 10, go for it. Very easy section of scripture to read, of course. Lots of uh, names there. And uh, as you guys all know, you're Hebrew, of course. You pronounced every name accurately. But as we are wrapping up, that is the genealogies. As it says there, these are the clans of the son of Noah, according to their genealogies and their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Well, as we are going to be looking at chapter 11 uh, today, that has set up up the tee for us to continue on to what is going on here with this Tower of Babel. Well, before we get to that, it was 120 years ago when the great ship Titanic was first launched into the sea when uh, an employee from the White Star Line so confidently proclaimed to a boarding passenger, he said, that not even God himself could sink this ship. Well, as the Titanic was the largest and most advanced ship of its day, it was a marvel of, of human ingenuity, a marvel of man's progress and labor, collective labor, coming together to build one project. It was amazing for its time, and they boasted of that as being the greatest ship in the world. Now, as we know the story of Titanic, we know of its tragic end, that this great ship was no match for a, for a massive iceberg, which tore through her keel and caused it to capsize in just over two hours, and it killed 1,500 of her passengers due to a lack of a, not enough lifeboats, all because of what? Because that not even God himself could sink this ship. So friends, the ambition of of humanity is impressive, to say the least. As you look uh, throughout our history, as you look at uh, our our world from one end to the other, the advancement and the progress of our collective pursuits together are incredible. It's even awe-inspiring to be thinking about. I mean, just when we're thinking about ships, we're thinking about Noah and the Ark, we're thinking about, again here, Titanic. Think about the ships that we have today. Think about how they dwarf the Titanic. Think about the tallest buildings that scrape the skies. Think about the depths that we have traveled into the ocean and even into the outer limits of space. Friends, what humanity has done together as a world and as a society 
is extremely impressive. I mean, just think about the advancements of technology and science and medicine, and then just think about over, how over the past hundred years, how far we have come together to do incredible things. Well, friends, as God created us to take dominion of the earth and to multiply across this planet, across the face of the earth, as history has proved itself, we have taken up that charge and that ambition that man does have an insatiable appetite to advance and progress and to create to the outer and innermost limits of what we know. But as good as that collective ambition is, and as unlimited as our reach may seem, we need to be careful that where ambition tends to take us, it can also take us down a dangerous path. Friends, as we turn now to the Tower of Babel here in chapter 11, as this is that famous story about our beginnings, about the beginnings of various languages and the foundational story about how we spread across the planet, more than anything, it's a truth about what happens when man's ambition conflicts with God's intentions. So this is about the futility of man's ambitions versus the immutability of God's intentions. So before we jump into chapter 11, let me pray to prepare our hearts. Lord, we thank you for gathering us. We thank you that by Christ's blood, we get to gather as the people of God. We thank you that we get to worship. We get to sing songs about your grace, your glory, what you have done. We thank you that we get to sing of our salvation to to one another, to, to recount the beauty of the gospel in our lives, what you have done in ages past, and what you've done in Christ Jesus on the cross and with the open tomb. We rejoice in the gospel today. We rejoice in the good news of Jesus Christ in our life, the transformation that comes through him, through repentance and faith. And Lord, we gather together to grow. As we sung this morning, we want to know you more. And we pray that even today, as we turn to your word today, that you would teach us more about yourself. And then in light of who you are, that we would learn more and more about who we are in light of you. And so we prayed by your spirit that you would illuminate your scripture to our, to our souls and that you would enlighten our minds, renew us, so that we can be transformed into your image. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, the futility of man's ambitions versus the immutability of God's intentions. So as Noah's sons were to take on that divine baton, right, given to them by God, right, all the way back to Noah, and now, or sorry, all the way back to Adam and Eve, and now through Noah and then to them, to go and multiply and fill the earth, as I just had you read of that genealogy here in chapter 10, we can see clearly that after the flood, humanity was definitely spreading over the earth again, and that humanity was further advancing. We see here that kingdoms were being built, cities were being constructed, Major historical names and places that we even still know of today are being established. We also hear of clans and lands and languages spreading. As chapter 10 here revealed how Ham's offspring settled in North Africa and along the eastern Mediterranean coastline. And then as the descendants of Japheth spread north to Asia Minor, all the way into Europe, And then how Shem's descendants spread into Mesopotamia and then south to Arabia. I actually have a map here just to to show that actually happening. This is referred to commonly as the Table of Nations. 
So if you want to know where you came from, you can just look at the color codes there. Um, you see that uh, green is the descendants going south and, and west, and then we have the red going to the north, the descendants of Japheth. And then you have blue kind of staying kind of in the middle there, but also going south, the descendants of Shem. And so this is really the, how, how since the ark and the flood, people started to spread across the world. Now, although our nations have been uh, intermixing and spreading and moving all over the land as well, by and large, if you just want to pinpoint that land between the two great rivers, the Euphrates and the Tigris, it's from here that these three sons then splinter uh, and Noah's offspring then goes out into the world. Now, as we approach this story of the Tower of Babel on the heels of this genealogy here, we have to understand that when Moses is writing this section, he shifts away from writing chronologically to now writing thematically. That, it, that this genealogy, it, the story isn't happen, happening chrono- chronologically here. What we're seeing is, is that this Tower of Babel is taking place closer to the beginning of that genealogical record as it is a precursor to the spread of these kingdoms and nations. So as you're seeing them spread, just kind of imagine the Tower of Babel at the very beginning here. And that's going to show us, like I said today, the futility of man's ambition versus the immutability of God's intention. Friends, one thing that we've, we've learned so far through the book of Genesis is that wherever man goes, there goes sin, right? Wherever man multiplies, so sin multiplies. Whatever man does, so so no matter how impressive of the things that we do, sin is always there to taint and to stain and to corrupt the things that we are doing. And so as we look at the first four verses here, we're going to learn about man's arrogant ambition. Man's arrogant ambition. That united we stray. So the first four verses starts out, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And, And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole ground." So as we're zooming back to the advancement here of the generations of Noah's three sons, the first thing that we see here is that one of the major advantages that led to their ambitious advancement was the reality that they had one language. It says here, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Right, as Noah and his family would have had one language coming off the ark, it would have made sense that they would just pass that language down to their three sons as you would to your children, and that these sons would use that one language for their offspring and so forth, because why would you change your language? There's no reason for it. And so the whole earth, meaning everyone, had one language at that time, all the offspring, and they were able to communicate effectively with one another, and in doing so, what it did was just foster great cooperation as they could freely communicate without any kind of confusion. I mean, just think about how much easier it would be if the whole earth just spoke one language today. Just think about how advantageous that would be. And so as the text goes on to say that they found a plain, they found the land of Shinar, it says that they settled there. 
They head out east from the ark, from where Noah and his family landed with the ark and then started their garden, and they start heading east. And so it seems here that the offspring are obeying the command of the Lord to go out and multiply and fill the earth. Especially now, we see them going out east, and we see them arriving at this land of Shinar. And so we think that what's going on here is they're obeying the Lord. Now, Shinar is an important place to pay attention to here. As Shinar in world history is the place between two rivers. You can put the map up again. The Tigris and the Euphrates rivers are there. This would later be known famously as Mesopotamia and even later as Babylon. And as you've read the genealogies already, you would have come across a name of a man. And that name is Nimrod. He was a descendant of Ham. Uh, we kind of use the name Nimrod kind of derogatorily, derogatively today. Right, you're such a Nimrod, right? But according to the Bible, this was quite a guy. In fact, the Bible says that he was on earth the first mighty man. Genesis 10, 9 to 12 says he was a mighty hunter before the Lord to the point that there was a well-known saying amongst the people and the saying was this, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. And so this guy, Nimrod, is a big deal. He is famous. He's famous for his hunting prowess and his might. But not only was he a great shot, it also says in verse 10 that the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. And so this takes us back. The story goes to this time of, of Nimrod building Babel. And so as these people are coming along and they're settling along the land of Shinar under the leadership of Nimrod, he would have been the key leader who was leading the people to build this city. And so as they build, they also advance in their ingenuity and their technique. As we see here, there is a new technology of construction that arrives on the scene, which then just further aids their ability to design and construct. As the text says here, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And it says, and they had brick for stone and they had bitumen for mortar. Now that may not sound like very advanced technology to us today, as brick building has even gone somewhat to the wayside here, especially in, in Western Canada, is given way to concrete and steel and glass. Back then, this was cutting edge technology. Even as uh, theologians note that the Canaanites and the Israelites, even in the text, uh, it, it talks about them building out of stone. They would have to hew out of stone, big stones in order to build. What we see here with those at Babel is that they're actually taking clay from the ground and they're mixing straw in with the clay and then they're baking that clay in forms and this is making bricks. And when you can make all these bricks in the same size, it's a very uniform material, meaning that they, they after... Not, not only do they have to create this, they don't have to scrounge far and wide to find quarries of stones. They just have an unlimited resource of clay in the ground. And so they bake these bricks and it just enables them all the more to construct buildings and construct cities to an advanced level. The architectural construction and the whole process would have sped up in this process and so this is a major advancement in world history. And with that, it says, they said to each other, come, let us build ourselves a city. And this would be the city of Babel. And they say, 
and let us build a, a tower with its top in the heavens. So obviously this is going to be a, a high tower, and that is the Tower of Babel that, that they are building. And then with that, they say, let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And so what we see here now is that the narrative is shifting. As it was originally sounded like what they were doing in the beginning was obeying God to to spread through the earth. What we see here is that in their ambition, as they are building their tower and their city, the purpose behind all of this is really not for the Lord, but it's really for themselves. So the first thing we see here is that they want a tower with its top in the heavens. And this is to be a very tall tower, probably the tallest tower of its time. And this tower would have stood out as a a marker of man's own ingenuity, and even more so, it would, it would also stand as this kind of a bridge or a gateway between heaven and earth. It's talking about its top being in the heavens. Now, no one is quite sure about how tall this tower would have been, but what we do know is that as advanced as brick-making was back then, brick-making, building out of bricks, has its limitations. This building would have been nowhere near the skyscrapers that we have today, but for its time... It would have been really impressive. In fact, historians and archaeologists put this building to arrive somewhere between 100 feet and 300 feet. In fact, if you want to put that into context, the Calgary Tower downtown, uh, I think, is 600 feet. So it might have gone about halfway to the the height of that tower. In fact, archaeology from that area, which is Iran and Iraq today, would equate this tower to being something similar to what is called a ziggurat. I got a picture here of uh, a ziggurat, which to this day, archaeologists have discovered about 25 of these so far in that area. In fact, the one on the right uh, has been standing ever since the the time began because it's been continually upgraded and renovated. In fact, the last renovation, I think, was in the 90s, done by Saddam Hussein. But at that time, the tower would have been the largest uh, building or highest building of its day, as close to the heavens as they could get with their technology. And so as they're building this city with this massive tower at the center, it would have been the wonder of the world. And it would have been impressive to the whole world. And, but the problem is, is who are they building this for, right? Are they building this for the glory of God or are they building this for themselves? Well, what we see here is that they are actually building this for themselves, for their own self-worship and even idolatry, right? In fact, history holds that these other ziggurats would often have a temple on the very top and they wouldn't be temples that are devoted to Yahweh, but temples that are focused on false gods. And in the case of the Babylites here, especially in the story, the false god of the story is, is them themselves, Right? They say it. They say, let us make a name for ourselves. Not God. They want to make a name for themselves. And so what we see here in their great ambition is a total miss. They totally miss the point. And what Moses is communicating here is that in the unity of their language and in their technological advancement collectively together, this ultimately led to them glorifying themselves rather than glorifying God, rather than obeying God. They are being disobedient to God. And so again in this book of Genesis, we see that our sin-sick hearts 
tend to cast our eyes towards ourselves rather than upon the greatness of God. You know, friends, this whole better together thing is only true if it's better together for the Lord. In fact, what we see here in this vertical construction of this tower in the heavens is really a a concrete brick balling up of one's fists against God. And they're doing this together. They're building this massive thing as, as a big fist, God. We can do it. We love ourselves. We don't need you. It's basically saying, God, we, we, we hear that you're great, but we are greater. We can get to heaven on our own. Friends, they wanted to make a name for themselves rather than making much of the name of the Lord. And as we think about that, that's exactly what we do. That's exactly what we naturally do together. Right, right from the very beginning with Adam and Eve, they were warned about this tree, right? Don't eat of that tree. If you eat of it, you're going to have this knowledge of good and evil. And so they wanted it. They, they wanted that knowledge of good and evil. They wanted to be like God. And so we see that here with the Babylites as well. They naturally want to be God, but they don't want God. They want to make a name for themselves. They want to seek reputation. They want to seek renown. They're pretty self-impressed. Look at me. Friends, this is the natural inclination of the human heart. And if you multiply that onto others, arrogance is multiplied. Misery loves company. And we can do some pretty awesome things for our own self-glory. Making a name for ourselves. Friends, this is just collective ambitious and arrogance going on here. We think that we're pretty awesome. And so this tower that stands in this city is really a tower to themselves. It's a tower of worship, not to God, but to mankind. In fact, what's interesting throughout history is that mankind has this ongoing obsession of building towers. From right here with the Babylites through these ziggurats to the Egyptians building their pyramids to the Mayans and their Aztec temples even up to the cathedrals in Europe, getting higher and higher, more impressive. And then even more so in the last 150 years as our cities are skyrocketing upward with skyscrapers. Like at one time, I think the CN Tower was the tallest structure in the world. It was 1,815 feet until it was surpassed by the Burj Khalifa in Dubai in 2007, which stands at 2,717 feet. And I'm sure... It's not going to hold that record for long. In fact, there's even a plan. If you look at the picture on the right there, there's a plan to build another ziggurat in the world. In fact, that plan is to have, uh, in in, uh, Saudi Arabia, is to have a million people living in that as a city in the sky. So friends, it's a part of the prestige and pomp that we want for ourselves so that we can say, look at us. We've got the highest. We've got the biggest. We've got the greatest building Look at me, don't look at God. That's what our heart wants to do. It's a part of the human sickness. Even in such marvelous projects, we want to give ourselves glory rather than God. It's naturally who we are. And so we often compete with each other, and we also want to compete with God. Now, you may not be building a real ziggurat or a real tower to show your greatness to the world, But friends, that inner heart that we have is often a tower 
that we're constantly constructing as a throne for ourselves when it's supposed to be the throne of God. We often make our own bricks of self-congratulation or self-impression and we, we bake them within the flames of pride within that ready kiln of our hearts. And then we stack those bricks higher and higher within ourselves, which then points to almost like an internal tower of Babel that outshadows the glory of Christ in our life. We seek to build ourselves up, not only on the overwhelming fountain of self-love, but also seeking the approval and the praise of others as well. Friends, we are really good at this. Upselling ourselves to the world. Promoting ourselves to others. Look at me. Doesn't our own technological advancement today just feed that all the more? Our eye this and our eye that, our lightning speed internet, our scrolling social media with all of its glossy filters and touch-ups and that facade of a one-way controlled presentation where likes and thumbs up and views just stack up those inner bricks in our hearts higher and higher. Let me make a name for myself. When all along, friends, there is only one name that is truly great. There is only one name that is truly to be praised. Just as God says in Isaiah 45, 5, he says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. And then as Romans 1.23 reminds us that we often exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. As you think about that Tower of Babel, that's an image of mortal man. Let us make a name for ourselves. Friends, even though we have to admit we love to worship ourselves. And so this act of, of settling and building upward, not for God's name, but for man's fame is an act of absolute rebellion and autonomy and independence from God. In fact, the name Nimrod means to rebel. And so as they rebel, we also see that they're disobeying God. They say, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They don't want to go as the Lord has commanded them. Right? There's security and there's comfort together as we cling together in all of our greatness, perceived greatness. So friends, I'm not sure where you're at with the battle against self-acclaim and pride. I'm quite sure the years of the secular self-esteem movement, me-centered ideology have not helped you any. But as we can see right out of the gate here, we humans... We're just natural rebels against God. We're excellent lovers of ourselves, And then when we do this together, as impressive as what we build may, may look to the world, it's an absolute disaster in the eyes of the Lord. And so we need to heed the warning here that united we stray, that we can be so ambitiously arrogant and so we have this city here, and we have this tower, and you have a proud people. And so what does God do about it? Well, as he already promised not to flood the whole earth again, what we see is that he does sovereignly intervene. He intervenes in man's plans as he de determines to carry on his will. 
And so God sovereignly intervenes. Friends, divided we fall. Verse 5 says, And the Lord came down to the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. It wasn't so much that God was so impressed by their city. He's just so impressed by their tower that he comes down to marvel at it. No, what's grabbing God's attention here is that as they are so united, as they are so industrious together, is that that industrious energy they have together is not aimed at him, but it's aimed at themselves, and it's producing such disobedience and sin. Notice first here that they claim to build a tower to the heavens. Friends, in comparison to the heavens of the high and lifted up God, Their little tower is puny. It is nothing in the eyes of God. He's not impressed by this tower. The fact that he had to come down to see it shows you that it was puny in light of the height of who he is. That their tower might might have been high enough and, and great enough in the eyes of the world to lead them to worship themselves, their self worship. There's no greatness in it compared to the true and the high and the holy God. And so as God has to lower himself down in order to even come down and see their greatest efforts, friends, as we remember this, we remember that this is written by Moses. We remember that what he is writing here is, is being delivered to the people of God, a people who are prone to pride, right? As Moses is leading, as they're following the Lord in the desert, as he's writing this, right? He often refers to them as what? Stiff-necked donkeys. They don't want to follow. They want to go their own way. Reminds me of myself. Might remind you of yourself as well. In fact, as you look at the literary structure of this whole story, you can see that the climax of this story is God coming down. This is the pinnacle point of the story. In fact, as you look at this section, there's a chiastic structure going on here which maps out point for point how man rebels and then how God responds. And that God coming down is the fulcrum of the action going on here and that this is the main point to be driven home. I mean, when you, when you look at that structure, you see God coming down as the climax and then everything is his response after that. He says, and the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Really what's going on here is God is saying, this is the only beginning of their evil. Sin always multiplies. And nothing that they're going to propose to do will now be impossible for them. Now friends, we we don't read this in the sense that God is, again, impressed. We don't read this in the sense that God is surprised at their ingenuity and their advancement. No, what I hope you're hearing in these words here is actually divine satire. That as God says that it's it's only the beginning of what they'll do and nothing will be impossible for for them, there is divine ridicule going on here for the folly of mankind. That as they are thinking that they're so great and they're forgetting of who is truly great, the point being made here is that man's greatest attempts at anything are really nothing compared to God. God. 
That man's self-praise is so low, it's so misguided, it's so ridiculous in light of who God is, God has to come down and pump the brakes on this system. That their absolute rebellious folly and multiplied arrogance means that God has to come down and intervene. It says in verse 7, Come, let us go down. Let us go down. Remember, God is a plurality. We've seen that already in Genesis. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language. So what? So that they may not understand one another's speech. Right? If you can't comprehend or understand someone else or what they're saying, if you can't clearly communicate with them or, or even reveal what you need to say to them or be understood by them, all of a sudden building cities and building towers is going to become extremely hard. Now, friends, one of the godly attributes that the Lord has, has shared with humans is our ability to clearly communicate with one another. He passed down that, that attribute to us. We have this ability to speak and communicate and understand with a high level of language. And communication is essential to life and collaboration, especially when you think about this project of this tower or any kind of project. I mean, when you think about this tower, there would have been a design to it. There, there would have been some sort of prints that they're following, some sort of way to measure and to communicate the logistics of, and manpower and instructions. And this common language would only be helpful to this. But now that, that they can't even understand each other, that, that it's all gibberish, it would have been so hard to try to do anything together. Each would have had their own different language now. There wouldn't have had been enough time to, to give this, to write this language down on paper and then to produce a distinct alphabet and to come up with all the linguistic details and grammar in order to teach the next guy to understand you and you them. I mean, even if they had the time to explore each other's languages, even if they had time to have this written language, I mean, just think about the differences of the alphabets. Think about the difference of the Hebrew alphabet compared to the Greek alphabet in Jesus' day. They're so vastly different. Think about the direction that they would even write, right? Greek left to right, Hebrew right to left. The languages they had back then would have been confused like that as well. Different directions, different sounds, different vowels, different consonants, different declensions and tenses and differences. Friends, the differences in languages we have today is absolutely incredible. And this is where it all started. Friends, to be human is to communicate. And when it gets all confused, as it is here, your ability to progress and flourish suffers. No, an inability to speak and understand each other actually divides. And that's exactly what's going on here in verse 8. Verse 8 says, So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. They were unable to continue. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the languages of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. And so today, we still have this term amongst us to Babel, right? Like a baby babbles or a, or a brook babbles, right? To Babel is just incomprehensible noises. 
That's what they're hearing from each other. One guy's trying to speak to the other. It's just incomprehensible noise. And the Lord did this to disperse them over the face of the earth, to stop them from trying to build themselves up, but to fulfill what he has commanded them. And so he sovereignly intervenes. Right, this, this command from the very beginning, go and multiply and fill the earth. As man rebelled, God steps in to make it happen. So we can see this as a judgment upon them for their ambitious arrogance, and it's also a firm but clear corrective that when the futility of man's ambition challenges the immutability of God's intention, friends, God will have his way. He'll always have his way. We cannot thwart the plans of God. No, God is God. And what he says, he does. What he works, he works. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Friends, the world may think that it's really smart and creative and powerful and that they don't need God, but as man is so self-impressed, Psalm 2.4 tells us, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Do you want to make the Lord laugh? Well, tell him how great you are. No, friends, as pride comes before a fall, United they strayed and divided they fell. As God has his way, friends, as God doles out justice here to confuse the plans of man, we have to also remember that there is a coming day when he is going to finally and fully disperse of the proud and the rebellious forever, as, as Doan was reading already, Isaiah 2. 12 to 15 says this, For the Lord of, of hosts has a day. There is a coming day. He has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low, against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, against all the oaks of Bashan, against the lofty mountains, and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, and against every fortified wall. And verse 17 says this, And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Friends, as you read your Bible, as you read the Gospels, as you read the New Testament, the way up is always the way down. As Jesus said and modeled himself, right, many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Friends, true exaltation is found only in humility. Friends, whatever was left of Babel, whatever was left of that tower, stood as a sign of judgment against them, as a sign of confusion, a sign of correction, that God alone is to be exalted, that God's way is to be obeyed. Because why? Because God is God. And what God wills is right and godly and good. Right? We may be tempted to think that our way is a better way or that the world's way is the better way, but just, just think about our society right now. Think about the way that our world is going, collectively running together. Think about the absurdity of what our world is calling good and right. I mean, some of you may be aware of this teacher in Oakville 
who was wearing just obscene, grotesque aberrations in his classroom. And how our world and government and school systems are protecting his rights, his sin as freedom of sexual expression. It's absolutely horrific. But in the eyes of the world, this is what's to be exalted. Even my son was filling out a form for school last week at the University of Calgary. And when it came to asking for his gender, it had a whole litany of other kinds of genders before it got down to men and women at the bottom of the list. This is good in the eyes of our world, but it's horrific in the eyes of God. Friends, our, our, our world is, is building all kinds of towers of self-impression and arrogance. They want to label it science. They want to label it in, enlightened thought. They want to label it tolerance of freedom. But in the end, it's, it's all going to be torn down. Romans 1, 21 to 22. For although they knew God, they did not honor him or give him thanks, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Friends, the book of Genesis to this point has been one of ongoing contrast between God and man, that what God does is good and right, and what man tends to do is evil and foolish. We see that on display today in our world. We even see it rising up sometimes in our own hearts. As much as Genesis here is theology, right, the, the study of God, it's also anthropology. It's the study of fallen man. That where God commands, man too often disobeys. Therefore, God has to bring judgment. We saw that in the sin in the garden. We saw that in the flood. And we see it right here again with the Tower of Babel. And so when we look at these stories, it may seem to be hopeless. Are we ever going to get it right? Are we ever going to do the right thing? Especially when we examine our own hearts and how we build towers within that overshadow the glory of Christ. It may seem hopeless. But the beauty of it all, as we know, the gospel, God intervenes. God comes down. He tears down the tower. Well, as this tower of Babel stands as the climax of a much larger section of the genealogies, as we now go on to see that this is planted and it seems somewhat abruptly within Seth's genealogy, as God scatters the people, the text goes on to complete Seth's genealogy after the tower. And so looking at verse 10, it says, these are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpashad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpashad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpashad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpashad lived another, or after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber, and Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Abar lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg, and Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. An interesting note there with the name Peleg. Peleg means divided. So we had Nimrod, rebellion, and Peleg divided. When Peleg had lived 30 years and he fathered Ru, 
And Pele lived after he fathered Ru 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ru had lived 32 years, he fathered Serug. And Ru lived after he fathered Serug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 32 years, he fathered Nahor. And Serug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. But listen to verse 26. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. So friends, as you see this tower in the middle of this, these genealogies, again, the tower is the climax. God comes down, intervenes, and continues his plan. God's plans cannot be thwarted. We see that here in this blessed line of Shem coming after the tower. It spreads and it multiplies. We see that here. God is further revealing his plan. His redemptive plan cannot be stopped as we see it here through Terah's son, Abram. The name Abram appears after such a long line of blessing leading up to that. Friends, as we see God's judgment again today in the text, remember that with the judgment, we always hear about the blessing as well. That as God had to intervene to further his will, he was furthering his promise to provide a coming savior for the world. And now we see with the mention of Abram, we know the rest of the story that that line of blessing is going to come through Abraham. Friends, God's plans cannot be thwarted, especially when it comes to his redemptive plan towards the savior, towards the Messiah, towards Jesus Christ. The world, the flesh, and the devil can do everything they can to try to thwart God's plans. Just remember when Jesus came on the scene. Herod was trying to kill him as a baby. Satan was trying to tempt him away from his father's plans. The Pharisees were trying to shut him up. The Romans tried to make him deny his father. And even death tried to get a hold of him. But in the end, the will of the Lord came through as it always does. Christ Jesus rose from the grave to save sinners like you and me. Sinners who, like Nimrod, rebel against him. Sinners who tend to love ourselves over him, building towers of self-impression. Sinners who want to proclaim their own name rather than the true name of God. Sinners who can't get to heaven on their own. Sinners who needed a God to come down. Sinners who needed a God to come down to confuse their evil plans. And to see that God himself propelled his plan even further and clearer through the line of Seth and then on through Abraham and then on to his very self, his son, Jesus Christ, the one who pleads you to come. The one who wants to gather his people once again. Even when you look at the day of Pentecost, you know, it's kind of confusing how we, we were looking at the day of Pentecost, right? This language these, these tongues of fire coming down, right? They were praying. The apostles are praying. These tongues of fire come down and people are proclaiming the gospel. Tongues, there is languages. They're proclaiming the gospel in the languages. All the Hebrew people were coming from all over the ends of the earth and God is regathering together, gathering them together and they can hear the gospel in their language. That's a small picture of what's gonna happen in heaven. 
as God gathers us together. People from every nation and tribe and tongue coming back together for the glory of God. Revelation 5, 9 to 10, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. That's to Jesus. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom of priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. As we look at this tower of confusion, this tower that, of, of, of pride and God's judgment to spread his people out to fulfill his will, as he sent his son, he's regathering, he regathered us, and he will regather us. And as I, I look out on, onto our church, I love to see all the different nations and languages that we have amongst us. This is just a small taste of heaven to come in Jesus Christ. Friends, as we confront our pride, this is really good for us to do, especially, like let's say in our small groups this week, the curriculum will be coming out for you to apply to your life. There's gonna be some questions of pride in our heart. Where is that pride? What are the towers that we are building in our heart that overshadow the goodness and the glory of Jesus Christ? As we look at this story, this is also a story of hope. Friends, we have God's word. We know the end, right? We have the hope. His plans are secure to the end. We know for sure because of what has been written that Jesus is coming and he's coming soon. And that he is the mighty fortress. He is the strong tower. He is the bulwark that never fails. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you that in it, even in this large section, we see you communicating clearly to us. As you confused our languages, your word is so clear and precise and given to us so fully and sufficiently. Lord, we thank you that you have spoken to us. That yes, in the days of the old, you spoke by the prophets, but in these last days, you have spoken to us through your son, Jesus Christ. We're so thankful that even as we look out into our world right now, as we are so collectively arrogant, we are so collectively just together, just thinking that what's, what's wrong is right, what's right is wrong, what is sin is good, and what, what is good is sin. It's such a confusing world. We do thank you that we have the truth we have the perfect, sufficient truth of how we are to walk forward in this world and to long for the return of Christ. And so we pray today that if, if, as we analyze our own hearts, as we even see today, as, even as Christians, as pride still rises up within us, we pray that you would help us to kill that pride, help us to get our eyes on the God who sends us out into this world, the God who never fails. We pray it in his name. Amen.